open to the book of James, chapter 1. James, chapter 1. We're going to treat verses 13 through 18 as a section, but um, when I was preparing for this, I only got to verse 13. So I'll be reading verse 13. Let no one say, when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your holy and precious word. Father, I ask that you would give me wisdom and strength to deliver this word in a way that is pleasing to you. That you would grant us your Holy Spirit to apply the word to the hearts of each and every person here. Heavenly Father, change us through your word. Convict us, strengthen us, encourage us, equip us, build us up. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So for the past two Sundays, I was here, we looked at the proper way to respond to trials from James chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. And in our text today, we have a bit of a transition. In verses 13 through 16, we will examine the wrong way or the sinful way to respond to trials. And we will cover verse 13 today, and Lord willing, the next time I am here, verses 14 through 18. There are similarities in these two sections in terms of James stating a response to trials and what that response leads to. In verses 1 through 12, we are told to respond to trials with joy, knowing that they lead to endurance, which leads to Christ-likeness. We are to ask for wisdom in faith and endure to the end and when we do this it leads to eternal life and as we transition into verses 13 through 16 we see the opposite progression where trials become temptations to sin and where sin leads to death and i will touch on this progression next time but keep this in the back of your mind in the business world there is what is called a a flywheel concept. The idea is in order to make the company move forward, you have to build momentum. You have to do the right things knowing that they lead to something good. And then there's also called a doom's loop, where one bad decision leads to another bad decision, leads to another bad decision, and it leads to destruction. And, And that is what this is like. In our Christian life, we have a cycle of temptations, a cycle of trials, rather. And every time we face this trial, if we want to grow, we need to respond to this trial with joy. We need to endure. We need to ask for wisdom. And this leads to life. But there is another flywheel, a dooms loop, as it were. And this, what we see today, is the first step in the dooms loop. 
Verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. Why would anyone blame God for temptation? Who in their right mind would do this? I mean, we do know that there are atheists, right, who blame God for things, a God who doesn't exist. But, but, why, but James is writing to believers. Why would he say this? As I want to show you, this is not the temptation of a Christian who, who just doesn't understand theology. This is actually a unique temptation of a person who believes in God's sovereignty. And I'll show you why. He's saying, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. Because we are told that God brings us trials. This is not just a random statement. But, but it's a continuation of what we see in verses 1 through 12. How so? One of the key things we learned is that when we, when we have trials, we can respond joyfully. Why? Because we know they are for our good. What does this mean? Only a sovereign God can guarantee that. He also tells us, He can give us wisdom to make it through trials if we ask. Only a sovereign God can guarantee that. And this is a concept we see all throughout Scripture of God orchestrating everything by His sovereign hand. What did Joseph tell his brothers? What you meant for evil, God meant for good. He understood that God in His sovereignty was providentially orchestrating even the most evil plans of men to accomplish his own good plans. Even the most powerful, wicked rulers cannot thwart God's good plans. What do we read in Romans 8.28? And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Only a sovereign God can guarantee that. How could a God who's not controlling every aspect of our lives guarantee that all things will work for our good? He could not. We even saw that fiery trials, the fiery trials that God uses to test our faith are not meant to hurt us, but to strengthen us. God sends us into the fire to remove the dross and refine the gold. This takes skill. It takes sovereignty to do this. To put someone in the fire, to remove the dross, but to make sure that you don't destroy them in the same time. Now with these things in mind, let us look at what James is doing here. James tells us that trials are for our good, and he does this under the assumption that God is in total control of all things. And he anticipates what this theology can lead to if not properly understood. Think about it. If God is in control of all things, and he sends us trials or allows them to go through them, then who is to blame when we sin because of our trials? See, this is where this bad theology can lead. 
this is not the temptation of a person who, who doesn't believe in God's sovereignty. This is the temptation of you and I. Now, I know what you're thinking. You would never say, God tempted me. It's his fault that I sinned. God just outright tempted me. Of course, we would not say that, but that's not what James is saying. When we look at this verse in the Greek, we, we get a little bit of a better understanding of what James is saying. James says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. Or perhaps your translation says, I am tempted of God. But there are two Greek prepositions that James could have used here for of or by. We have the Greek words apo and hupo. Now, hupo indicates direct agency. But apo indicates indirect agency. And here in verse 13, James uses the preposition apo, indirect agency. This means that James is not talking about a person who is saying that God is directly responsible for my temptation to sin, but rather indirectly. He is speaking of a person who believes that God is indirectly responsible for their temptation. And the way verse 13 is worded indicates James is talking about a person saying this while they are going through a trial. So we could say, let no person say to himself, while he is being tempted, I am being tempted by God at this moment. James is describing a person who, while being tempted to sin, is indirectly blaming God for their temptation. In other words, God, you have me in this situation right now. You are responsible for this temptation. So here's a person who is facing a trial. And in this trial, temptation to sin arises. While facing this temptation to sin, they justify their desire to sin or actual sin committed by indirectly blaming God for their temptation. Why? Because God is sovereign and he brought about this trial. What does this look like in action? Lord, if you did not want me to do this, you would not have allowed me to be in this situation. God, you made me this way, so vulnerable to this particular sin, and you allowed me to be put in this situation. Lord, if you wanted to, you could change this situation right now. If you don't want me to do this, change my situation. You see, we indirectly blame God for our temptations and sin by blaming circumstances and people whom God has providentially placed in our lives. Now, this is nothing new, is it? Where does this begin? Genesis 3. Adam and Eve both eat the forbidden fruit on their own free will. They eat the fruit. God knows it. He asks them a very direct question. Have you eaten the fruit which I commanded you that you should not eat? This this is like a kid's answer. You know, you just never get a direct answer. Did, Did you do this? Well, this happened. That's not what I asked you. Did you do this? The woman whom you 
gave me. She gave me of the tree, and I ate. God, you gave me this woman. Your actions led to my temptation. The woman is the direct cause. God is the indirect cause. Adam has very little blame in this matter. So God says to the woman, what is this you have done? Eve's response, the serpent deceived me and I ate. It's the serpent's fault, who, who by the way, is a creature of God and was allowed to be there by God. It's not my fault. I blame the situation. I blame the people whom God has allowed to be here. John Gill said that sinful men are apt to charge God with their sins and temptation to them in imitation of their first parent, Adam. He says we inherited this line of reasoning from Adam. This is something Adam passed down for us and something we have done from generation to generation. So the Lord allows a trial in your marriage. And in the trial, you sin. During the disagreement, the temptation rises up within you and you just let your spouse have it. And in your mind, you justify this. Because, God, you joined us together. You gave me this woman. You providentially brought us together. And and you are the one who says, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Your sovereignty brought us together. It's not my fault. I can't help how this person is. She's unreasonable. So it's not my fault that I respond the way that I do. That, dear friends, is blaming God. When you blame your temptations and sins on circumstances and people, you end up blaming God. The logic goes like this. God brings the trial into my life through people and circumstances, and these people and circumstances cause me to sin. Therefore, God is pretty much responsible for my sinful actions because he could have prevented all of this if he would just get those trials out of my life. We blame God because we know that he is sovereign. This is not the temptation of the Christian who does not understand God's sovereignty. This is the temptation of you and I when we are blaming other things and other people for why we are the way that we are. It doesn't matter how you were raised. You are in control of what you do right now. It doesn't matter where you work, who you work with, how bad they are. You are responsible for your actions. James says, don't do this. When you are in the midst of temptation, do not say, I am being tempted by God. 
And why can't we blame God for our temptations and sin? We will break down James' response to this, his, his reasons into three headings, the holiness of God, the nature of sin, and the goodness of God. And we will only cover the first heading today, the holiness of God. Look with me at the second part of verse 13. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. God cannot be tempted by evil. What does this mean? MacArthur says this carries the idea of being untemptable, without the capacity for temptation. The nature of evil makes it inherently foreign to God. This is a concept that we can't even truly, totally grasp. Albert Barnes said there, are, there, there can be nothing presented from without to induce God to do wrong. There is no evil passion to be gratified as there is in men. There is no want of power so that an allurement could be presented to seek what he has not. There is no want of wealth for, for he has infinite resources and all that there is or can be is his. There is no want of happiness that he should seek happiness in sources which are not now in his possession. Nothing, therefore, could be presented to the divine mind as an inducement to do evil. But not only is there nothing that we could tempt God with to do evil, but he cannot be tempted to evil because sin is altogether contrary to his holy nature. I want to spend a little bit of time here because I really want to just make sure that we understand the weightiness of blaming our sins upon a holy God. The difference this is no light matter. But this is what we do when we blame our situations and the people God has placed in our lives. So what does it mean that God is holy? Sproul points out that that which is holy is that which is other. With God, it refers to his transcendence, the sense in which God is higher and superior to anything in the creaturely realm. In other words, God is there's this infinite difference between us and God. God's holiness also speaks of his moral purity, his separation from sin. Wayne Grudem gives us this definition. God's holiness means that he is separated from sin and devoted to seeking his own honor. And many have noted that God's holiness is not just one among many of his attributes. A.A. Hodge put it this way, The holiness of God is not to be conceived of as in one attribute among others. It is rather a general term representing the conception of God's consummate perfection and total glory. It is his infinite moral perfection crowning his infinite intelligence and power. God is infinitely above us, infinitely morally perfect. He is holy. And R.C. Sproul points out that God's holiness is, is like a cloak. 
that covers all of his other attributes. His love is a holy love. His mercy is a holy mercy. His justice is a holy justice. His grace is a holy grace. And we can go to Isaiah 6. And we see those six-winged seraphim flying around the throne of God in his presence. And what are they overwhelmed with? He is holy, holy, holy. Or as John says in Revelation um, about the the four six-winged creatures around the throne, they, they do not rest day or night. They are perpetually overwhelmed saying, holy, holy. Holy. And we know that this repetition of the word holy is a way to emphasize the word in the Hebrew. And as Sproul points out, there is no other attribute of God that is emphasized to this degree. We never hear he is mercy, mercy, mercy. But he is holy, holy, holy. And we see this all throughout Scripture. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His holy hill, for the Lord our God is holy. But the Lord of hosts shall be exalted in judgment, and God who is holy shall be hallowed in righteousness. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. I like what Andrew Murray says. And what now is this holiness of God? It is the highest, most glorious, and most all-embracing of all the attributes of God. Holiness is the most profound word in the Bible. Both the Old and New Testament tell us this. Isaiah heard the seraphs with veiled faces cry out, Holy, holy, holy. John heard the four living creatures say, Holy, holy, holy. Now listen to this. This is the highest expression of God's glory in heaven by beings who live in his immediate presence and bow low before him. If you want to know, the one attribute by beings in the very presence of God emphasize it is God's holiness. Now let's apply this to sin. Andrew Murray said the meaning of the words, the holiness of God, is not easily expressed. But we may begin by saying that they imply the unspeakable aversion and hatred with which God regards sin. And if you wish to understand what that means, remember that he preferred to see his son die rather than that sin should reign. Think of the Son of God who gave up his life rather than act in the least manner against the will of the Father. Still further, pay attention to this. He had such a hatred of sin that Christ preferred to die rather than men should be held in sin's power. Imagine hating something that much. I would die to alleviate you from that. Why this hatred for sin? Because he is holy. Considering God's holiness, 
his unspeakable aversion and hatred of sin. Dear friends, how wicked is it to blame our sins on God? This is unspeakable. In light of God's holiness, Adam should have been stricken dead when he implied that God had guilt for his sins. What a gracious God. What a gracious God. To have an absolute holy aversion and hatred for sin. And this ungrateful creature says, you made me do this. This is your responsibility. You know he's a good God to restrain his wrath at that moment. Dear friends, this holy God cannot be tempted to sin. But here's the question. Would he tempt others to sin? John Gill said, God is holy and without iniquity, nor does he delight in sin, but hates and abhors it, nor can he commit it, it being contrary to his nature and the perfections of it. No one can tempt another to sin unless he is sinful himself and delights in sin. I can remember as a child thinking that bad things were funny, maybe middle school, I knew better than to do that. But my friends, not so much. So I would say, hey, you should go do that. Because I thought it was funny. But, but, but I myself had to be wicked in order to delight in the fact that, that he was going to sin and I could watch this take place. A person who would tempt others to sin is himself a sinner. And dear friends, this is not this holy God. What a God who absolutely hates sin. In a way that we cannot even begin to comprehend. Tempt someone to sin. Douglas Moo said, what, we, what, what must be understood is that temptation is an impulse to sin. And since God is not susceptible to any such desire for evil, he cannot be seen as desiring that it be brought about in men. <coughs> Stephen Charnock put it this way. Holiness can no more approve of sin than commit it. God does not approve of sin. How could he tempt others to do what he does not approve of? Dear friend, God is not like us. We, we really can't begin to understand his, his hatred of sin. Don't think of God as the false gods of our culture. I love how MacArthur points out that if you look at every other religion and every other god, they're wicked. They're immature. They, they commit adultery with their subjects. 
Why? Because they're created by wicked men. A God that is created by a wicked man cannot rise above the morality of its creator. The stream, MacArthur would say, cannot rise higher than its source. Think about that. To blame God for temptation in other religions is not really a big deal. Why? Because their gods are wicked. It's not out of the the norm for them to actually tempt their people. But don't take this pagan idea of God and bring it into Christianity. The God of the Bible is altogether different. He is holy. He has nothing to do with sin and therefore cannot be tempted and does not tempt anyone. But let's get practical. Perhaps someone will say, I know that in no way is God responsible for my temptations and sin. But I just don't see how that's the case because practically speaking, God sends the trial and it calls me to sin. I know theoretically I cannot blame a holy God, so explain how this works. I'd be glad to. Dear friends, if you think this way, perhaps you don't understand the difference between a temptation and a trial. These are two different things. Now James understands that as humans, we often respond to our trials by sinning, and this is why he transitions from trials to temptations. So how does this work? During our trials, there is something that tempts us to do wrong. And we often give into that temptation. Because something during our trial tempts us to sin, we often think the trial itself is a temptation. But this is not the case. God brings the trial. Your wickedness turns it into temptation. God does test us and try us, but he never tempts us to sin. He, he brings trials to, to help us grow, not tempt us to sin. God's intention in bringing or allowing trials is never to make us sin. He, he does not tempt us to sin. <coughs> Once again, God provides the trials, and our response to those trials is what turns them into temptation to sin. Well, okay, you say. God sends the trials, and I respond sinfully. But why would God allow me to face a trial knowing that I would sin in that trial? God is omniscient. He he knows all things. Why would he allow me to face a trial knowing that it would lead me to sin? Well, first of all, we cannot blame our sins on our trials. Let me make this point for you. Adam in the garden was a perfect representative of mankind. 
He perfectly represented what, what, what you and I would have done in the same situation. Adam was in paradise with everything that he could possibly need. No pain, no hardship, no discomfort, an absolute paradise, and no sinful nature. And what did he do? He sinned. Now take the reverse of that. Christ in the wilderness. Barren wilderness. Fasting for 40 days in a desert. Hungry, tired, weak. The worst circumstance he could be in to be tempted with food and the devil cannot tempt him to turn a rock into bread. The situation was as bad as could be. No sin. Adam, the situation is as good as can be. He can eat anything he wants besides one piece of fruit. He's not hungry. He he has no trials. And he sins. What is the point? (coughs) Adam is proof that no matter how easy your life is, you sin. Oh, we can say all day long, if God had not brought this trial, I would not have sinned. But I can just about guarantee you would have been sinning in some other way at that time. Because it's not the trial, it's the person. We sin with and without trials. Trials are not the determining factor of whether or not we sin. Okay then. What then is this relation that I have between my trials and my sins? Now here's what it is true. Our trials can bring certain sins to the surface. Not because those trials are are the, the cause of sin, but those trials are revealing your sinfulness. God does use our sins to show us what is within us. He he does allow us to be squeezed in order that we can see what comes out. He already knows what's in there. But we need to see it. God uses my kids as a means of helping me grow. He allows them to be, to be trials in many ways. Can I blame my kids for causing me to sin by being impatient and angry? No. What did they do? They brought anger that was deep down within my heart to the surface. They were little instruments to, to squeeze my heart So that God could show me, you have some things in there that you need to deal with. Yes, God did allow Peter to be tempted. Knowing that Peter was going to deny Christ. Why would he do that? For Peter's own good. He needed to be humbled. 
Remember what he said? If, if the whole world forsake you, I won't do it. Pride. Arrogance. God said, I'm going to allow this to happen to show you what's in your heart. To show you that you need to change. You need to grow. Well, didn't God pretty much cause Peter to sin by letting that happen? Absolutely not. He allowed the trial to help Peter, and God never tempted Peter to sin. And he also provided opportunities for Peter to escape temptation. So God had absolutely no part in Peter's sin. Isn't that interesting how God often provides escapes for our temptation and we still blame him? How many times have you done something or thought of doing something? You were about to do it and you got caught before you did it. Or you thought you were caught before you did it, but as soon as you realize, you know what, I'm actually not caught, I'll go ahead and do it now. An escape. You're contemplating this sin and you get a phone call from a random person and you think, should I answer this phone call or should I indulge in my sin? Escape. So many opportunities to escape and instead of escaping, we sin and we blame God for putting us in that situation. No, we put ourselves in that situation. Matthew Henry said, do we ask God, lead us not into temptation and then lead ourselves into temptation? It is us, not God. But, but you know what's amazing? Even though God has nothing to do with our sins, he, he provides the escape. He, he does not tempt us. But in his sovereignty, he even uses our sins to help us grow. Never tempts us. Provides the escape. But in his sovereignty knows when we are going to sin and uses that not for our destruction, but for our sanctification. No, I'm not going to providentially. No, I'm not going to, with a sovereign hand, just grab you and snatch you out of that sin. Sometimes he does that. But sometimes he leaves us to ourselves. Not that he has any part of our sins, but he leaves us to ourselves because in order for us to grow, we need to know what is in our hearts. And in order for us to know what is in our hearts, we need to be tried. It's like a child. You can't protect your kids from falling. Oh no, honey, don't, don't fall. Let me put some bubble wrap around you. We know what type of kid that brings up, don't we? No, son, you need to know things. You need to, you need to grow. You need to, you need to learn these things. You need to experience things. Not that God ever wants us to experience sin, but, but he does want us to see what is in our hearts. Because it's not all good. In me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. We need to see that. But dear friends, this is the first step in the wrong response to trials. Trying to justify our sinful desires in the midst of our trials by saying that I am tempted by God. I warn you, this leads down a very bad path that we will explore. 
God cannot be tempted to sin. And he tempts no one. It's not your spouse's fault that you sin. It's not your children's fault that you sin. It's not the fault of your tyrannical boss that you sin. It's not the government's fault that you sin. What did we talk about this morning? It's not the hegemony's fault. Right? That, that, that the minorities sin. So if I can't blame God, I can't blame people, I can't blame circumstances, and I can't even blame the devil, then who's to blame? In the words of Odibakum, I'm so glad you asked. James gives us a very clear answer in verse 14. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Interesting fact. I told you about those two prepositions, hupo and apo, and and. And James uses the word apo to indicate that God is not even indirectly related to our sins. Here James uses the word hupo, direct agency. God is not even direct, indirectly responsible for your sins, but guess what? You are directly responsible for your sins. Each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires. Not drawn away by the actions of my spouse, the actions of my children. Drawn away by his own desires. And we will leave this verse for next time because this is a sermon in and of itself. But let me just close by saying we need to understand that we are responsible for our sins. Dear friends, this is liberating to know. There is no one and nothing that can make you sin. It's liberating. Now for some, that that, that makes you too accountable. And it's uncomfortable. But it's liberating to know that when you truly want to change, if you truly hate sin, to, to know that there is not a force on earth that can make me sin is liberating. As wicked as Satan is, the words the devil made me do it should never come out of a Christian's mouth. He can throw temptation at you all day long, but the only thing he can do is bait your desires. And then it's up to you. God cannot make you sin. He's too much of a holy God for that. No other creature, no other force on earth can make you sin. Stop believing that. Your circumstances are not making you sin. Your desires are. Dear friends, if we have been blaming God and people and circumstances, 
may we confess that sin and repent. May we no longer say, honey, I'm sorry I sinned against you, but just stop the but right there. I, I sinned against you, but you did this. No. What, what is that saying? That's, that's kind of saying, yeah, I, I know I did wrong, but let me, let me tell you that you had some blame in this because you did something wrong. No. If, there was, if there's another issue to address there, then that's addressed separately, but your wife, your husband, is not responsible for your sins. And until we understand this, we will never grow in sanctification. Why? Because we don't need to grow. I'm perfect. The problem is all of you people. If you guys would get your act together, I would never sin. I'm perfect. You're the problem, not me. God, deal with these people. And I would be fine. What a false view of sanctification. But if we actually think that way, we don't actually believe that we need to grow because we're not the problem. Dear friends, the moment that we realize that we are the problem, the moment we can actually start growing. When we take responsibility for what we do, we see what's in our heart. And we cry out to God, asking Him to help us change. And we fight the flesh, tooth and nail. And that's how we grow. And we will continue this next time. Let us pray. Oh dear God, we come to you confessing that we often blame others for our sins. Lord, help us to see that we are blaming you by doing so. Help us to take responsibility for our own actions. To, to realize that, that other people, our circumstances, are not responsible for our sins, but we are. Sanctify us, Lord. Cleanse us. Help us to repent where we need to repent. Father, we thank you that you do not leave us to ourselves, but you do so much to help us grow. Help each and every person here to be growing in you. And Lord, if there is anyone here who does not know you, turn them to you. Give them faith in, in Christ and, and cause them to repent of their sins. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.